what's this thing you were telling me about? You asked me about a show that I paused and we started recording. What, what is this thing? You never heard of the show called Alone? No, I thought it was like Home Alone. No. So that's why I was asking. I'm like, I don't know. No, no, it's what? called Alone, and I, I can't remember how many contestants there are when they start the show. Maybe like 10. Wait, did they team up? No, it's called Alone. Oh. Well, <laughs> team up there on was some. I, my wife watched something where there were people, and there was a faction across the river, and then yeah, they started teaming up too. and stealing sleeping bags from yes, people. Yes, I saw that. Like, what is going on? What was that called? I don't know. I just, it was in the woods. And that was a little more... alone, but they were going to be eventually. That was a little more, like, uh, a little more drama. This yeah, is literally know. the person is responsible for, um, you know, keeping themselves alive, obviously, and then also recording everything, documenting everything. They don't have any human contact until the day that they're done, and it's basically last man or woman standing. And wow. so they drop you off in a helicopter... I think you get to bring like 10 personal items. What would you bring? I mean, I don't know. Everybody brings a bow. Really? Yeah, bow and arrows. And then... I guess that's um, smart. It's reloadable. Everybody... You ones. Yeah, you can... And everybody brings a hatchet or a saw. Yeah, you need something. Yep. Yep. That Some, makes sense. Something you to make start wood, fire. Chop wood, cut wood, cut things. Um, yeah, sleeping bag. Like, I don't, I don't know what everything they bring. I haven't ran a list of, of all the items. So would you bring a hatchet and, or like an axe hatchet and a knife? Or would you just bring Oh, I would bring a, a knife. I would bring a knife and either a hatchet or a saw. You gotta be able to get firewood. Yeah. The reason I was talking about this, though, is... Um, what about a fire starter? A fire starter. Yeah, I mean, lots of them bring something to start fire, but there's other badasses that feel like they don't need it. <laughs> How do they do? Just manually start a fire with rubbing sticks together. I bet it doesn't work as well as a fire starter. It doesn't, but if you're gonna if you're gonna compromise and something else, get huh? something else like a toothbrush, maybe. Yeah, that, <laughs> who needs teeth? I'm joking. Um, yeah, you could swap it off for any item. So I would probably bring that, something to hold water. Listen, that wasn't why I was even oh. starting this conversation. Oh, this um, was cool though. So it is a cool show because you can see like people's strategies. I mean, you need to have shelter, right? Yeah. You need to have water. Food, water, shelter. Food, water, and shelter. So what would you and prioritize safety. in that scenario? Food, water, or shelter? Uh, well, water's pretty darn important. Water's pretty darn important, right? Shelter, you can make, and you could probably get by. But I would bring something that keep you somewhat warm and dry. So it'd No, be listen. Two things. Food, okay. water, and shelter. Yeah, food. You'd prioritize food no, first? Water. Find some food? Find some water first? Yeah, first you need water. So you don't, you have to get shelter too, but you need water or else, if you don't find a source of water, you can die within three to five days. You can probably just sit there and live somewhere yeah. and just freeze. I mean, you're, you're in frozen. Alaska. This this episode was, or this season was in Alaska I was talking about. Pretty cool. Um, I see a lot of people start and they think, I'll get to the shelter. I'll get to the shelter. Well, they get weaker and weaker. weaker and they can't build a And shelter. they can't build a solid shelter and then the snow comes or whatever, winter is coming. Um, and then they have a crap shelter, and they're trying to ride out storms and, and snow and temperatures. And with a crap um, shelter, you need to have, if you're going to last months in the wilderness. I think you need a really good shelter. Like one guy built a Wait, house. You used to stay out here for months. Oh yeah, it's last man or woman standing. Okay, so the first and day, like first thing, find bucks. water and scout for places to sleep and build. Not you sleep. Find water like and shelter. A good spot for a shelter because if yeah, you like spend current. all your time building a shelter in a bad spot or half your time yeah. or even like a day, a it's wasted. Yeah. So I would look for water first so I could make sure I have a source of water. I would keep my shelter within 
reasonable distance of the water source. Yeah. And that's likely a good place for food if there's going to be animals that have to drink the water and or fish in the water. Are there clams in Alaska? You could go clam digging. I don't know. You got you got to watch the show. We're not going to solve the world's problems of alone right now. But, All right, well, but what I wanted to say, listen, the one I wanted to say is the guy that won it the last season I watched was season nine. Yeah. And, and you're never going to guess what the guy's strategy was. That's why I wanted you to think it through. And that is a traditional mindset. Like people think about shelter and water and food, right? This guy, his strategy was to do absolutely nothing. That seems do as little as possible and conserve his energy and just wait, just wait for other people to can use up all their energy and quit. It must have worked. It worked. The guy drank two gallons of olive oil per day to put on weight before he left for this trip. Two gallons. The the most calorie dense food, I guess, is olive oil. Wow. So um, so I yeah. I guess like the guy. The guy's name is Juan Pablo Quinonia. Quinones, and uh, he's from Canada, but he's lived in Mexico and a few other places, New Mexico and a couple other places. But anyway, he started out trying to get fish and and stuff, and um, you know you got to have water, right? Yeah, you do. So he's like, man, I've drank crappy water before. I'm not even going to boil my water. So he'd go chop a hole in the ice in the river every day when it got really cold and just drink the river water and then go back and lay down in his bed. And he never built a fire. He never boiled his water. He didn't eat for over a month. Wow. <laughs> and the guy had will of steel. Like, the guy was just determined. So they also have, like, wellness checks. And he was one they were really <laughs> concerned about. But they checked on him a couple times, and he was, like, doing okay. Other people get pulled because they have to report, like, blood pressure and, and pulse rate and stuff like that and they have to report on their weight every every day at a certain time and if you get below a certain threshold they'll come and do a wellness check it's the only time you'll see people uh, interact with them on the show um, unless they tap out and uh, he won wow I couldn't believe it 78 days that's a pretty long time for not having eaten for two months. I'm sure he ate berries I, or something. At the beginning he did he did eat and he said this was his this was his backup plan it was incredible but his priorities were... Did he have a small, like, wood house or hut? Uh, he built a hut. Uh, most people bring a tarp. And he had just built a makeshift uh, shelter with, like, some logs and tarp and stuff like that. And a cot to keep him off the ground he built. And, uh, yeah, and his sleeping oh, bag. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Incredible. Do your clothes count as items? Um, I don't know. Hopefully not. I don't think so. That's nice. I mean, rain gear, I think, is an item. And everybody oh. brings good quality wool layered clothes and good rain gear because rain gear will keep the heat in. Yeah. So That's yeah, that fancy. was awesome. His uh, his strategy paid off, and I can't remember if it's like five hundred thousand or a million bucks, but it was pretty cool. And then there's other ones I've seen. And spoiler alert: um, pretend, usually the guys or gals that win it, like they get they kill some type of big game, whether it's a deer or a muskox or something like that will get them. 30 to 60 days of food. So they must get tags for that. No, it's survival. How? I mean, there's certain things they can't kill. They can't kill bears. There's certain things that... You mean you can shoot all those big game animals without any licenses? I don't know how it works, Francis. Well, no, we'll find out. Now we have to look this up. That means you can just go to Alaska and go, I'm surviving, and then kill an animal and eat it. Yeah. 
I mean, maybe the maybe the show applies for permits for them before the. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, something like that. They just bribe people. Yeah, caribou, uh, muskox was crazy, super crazy. Well, that makes a good topic. How do you assess your priorities? Because there's a bunch of stuff that we do in shooting that we, I mean, life. we have to choose. I mean, life too. <laughs> uh, but it's definitely in shooting from, you know, hey, what am I going to focus on this season to what am I going to focus on this match to what am I going to focus on for this stage and what am I going to focus on for this shot? There's always a priority. And a lot of the time that can kind of catch you off guard if you're not familiar with how certain stages are laid out or what a like what an MD is trying to test on a given stage. You might be just, you know, so focused on like trying to memorize a, a sequence that you totally biff which positions are the most stable or some other variant like that. Um, I don't it all, know. It all matters. And I'm not sure how we can figure out this, every scenario is different. No, I, I get that everyone's different. Um, but I think there's a couple that that I've noticed, um, at least when I'm coming up to certain types of stages, I tend to shift my focus to certain elements. So, and it, I think they're probably fairly self-explanatory, but from stage identification and like different targetry, there's different areas that I just say I, I focus on more. Um, so good example of this. Uh, if I go to, if I'm looking at a troop line um, and I'm prone, as soon as I see a prone troop line style stage, the only thing I am focused on is what is, where is the wind coming from and to what extremes? And I mean the only thing. I'm not generally that concerned with target identification, but I am most concerned with where is the min and the max from the wind in both direction and trying to go what con- direction and condition give you the lowest possible value and what direction uh, and angle give you the maximum possible value for each and then making sure you have those sort of the brackets for each I of I wouldn't those. say you're not concerned with target acquisition, but I would say you're prioritizing the wind, maybe. That's kind of what you're trying to yeah, say. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like okay. assessing a priority. Like on that troop line, usually they're further out. So the it's not that you're not going to find the targets. I mean, but if it's a troop line that's sort of standard and targets are roughly one, two, three, four, five, kind of in a row, I'm much less concerned because A, we're prone. It's one position. I'm not concerned with building fast shots. I'm concerned with sending perfect shots. And most of that is going to be what wind call do I have because I've already dialed and we should have most of those basics. So I'm the most concerned about wind. And that's obviously true for you know any kind of positional shot you're worried about the wind. However, there's also other positions where, or other like a five position stage. It's so easy to take a five position stage um, and that maybe there's 10 different options or kind of an infinite number of options and you rush uh, here's a good example so at the finale remember we had that stage where you had two rocks uh, you had to use the far left and far right and then you could choose any five in the middle yeah sure I remember that one so I looked at a bunch of rocks and I kept seeing kind of mixes of everybody shooting off different rocks and um, I saw a lot of people like, getting seemingly close to timing out on that stage they didn't exactly time out but they were getting really close and I think there may have been one or two people that timed out even in my squad and, I don't, I don't uh, understand that yeah, and I mean, granted, I get it. It's it, it's a big transition, but the ones that I saw that were getting pretty close, say, were generally using the far left, then skipping a rock, go to the big flat one, or going to the middle, then left. They were using bipods and then jumping all the way back and forth. You know, I I knew it was they're rocks. They're going to be solid and stable no matter what, and we're confident from a bag. So, 
my strategy was just simply let me just save some time so I could focus on in this case the wind was very shifty so let me save a lot of time in motion through economy of motion by going all the way to the far left to start and then shifting to the was it third fourth rock from the far right so I could just run all the way to rock and then it was just rock half step rock half step last rock half step and be done with my motion so I wouldn't have to sort of pick up and duplicate a bunch of steps and um, do a full stand up take a step or two and sit back down or, and so on and so forth it's less efficient so in doing that I think I had like 20 something seconds left uh, yeah I got to my last position with 30 seconds left yeah it was and it was super easy that way but Again, when you look at a stage, finding the major priority, what is what is the priority for you? Let's say you're a newer shooter and you don't build a lot of good positions or you're not able to do them fast. Should your priority be getting through all five positions? I would argue no. If I would argue it's probably you should build four positions that are ultra solid so that you can build NPA, watch the shot, and learn the wind and learn to watch your shots through those first four shots. So... If you feel like you may have a problem, build your primary plan around four awesome positions and then have a plan for the fifth and don't be concerned or worried if you don't get there because the priority should be on building four solid positions so you can learn the uh, the wind call or the stability, especially if, say, you come to a new area and you've just turned 90 degrees or it's different terrain than what you shot previously. The focus should be on learning the unknowns where they're going to apply as much as possible for the future. Yeah, I feel like if you're a new, new shooter, then you don't even know how to build a stable position, let alone four of them, though. Yeah, but if you're I mean, newer, I'm not saying you're completely never shot a rifle before. I'm saying if you're a okay. newer shooter um, and you're going to build four positions, I would say most people have a hard time who are, when you're new, building one position that's perfectly solid. So trying to build five is a big, big, or, big ask. Building four is probably more likely in the time given. Okay, um, well, let's reverse that, like, rewind that and say hey man I want you to go to matches but I don't want you to go to matches unprepared like you should be dry firing and in 90 seconds you should be able to build five positions oh yeah you should be able to build five positions in 40 seconds well let's just call it 75 in case there are 90 second stages that gives you 15 seconds to troubleshoot I think that was my target back in the day was I need to be able to navigate this five positions with time to spare whatever that means for you yeah mine was 60 when I was dry firing, it was let's build a five position with 60 seconds. So that would be my priority before I even go to the match. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, when you, uh, I guess, what do you prioritize as, and granted, I know we're, I guess we're, let's maybe stop trying to stop use that word. Um, before we go to matches, at least for me, the priority is just following the making good ammo principles and then getting my regimen prior to a match down to a T. So that means if I'm not used to having a regimen prior to a match, that would be one of the first things I would focus on so that your your pre-routine, pre-match system starts to feel normal and it's just something you can count on doing. That doesn't mean it's not what you do to practice. It means it may include some practice, but it means what does your, hey, I'm going to a match all the way to the match, hey, I'm traveling, what does that look like? And um, I know for us, ours is fairly similar. I mean, we've talked enough now where I keep hearing you say like, yep, I know I know that it's somewhere around two, depending on your schedule in the coming weeks, somewhere between two and three weeks out, you have your ammo made. For sure. <laughs> and then you're, it's somewhere around the, the weekend before. Stale ammo is the best ammo. Yeah. Somewhere <laughs> around the weekend before, you're like, 
Yeah, I got to go double check my zero and speeds. Uh, but then I'm going to clean my barrel and then follow it in. But like I hear that same routine like every time. So yeah, I'm going to zero it, which means I'm actually, you're not just shooting your rifle just to shoot your rifle. You're zeroing and making sure as it sits, it's ready to go. That I'm going to make sure that I clean it and then follow it again. So that so you've already done that sort of shoot clean, shoot clean type of approach, if you will, to make sure, yep, I'm, I've got that regimen down. Um, and then the rifle is put away and ready to go get packed in the car. And then I know you shift your gears and somewhere around Tuesday night, yep, the gear is packed. It's going to go in the van on Wednesday night, uh, everything Heck except yeah. a rifle and ammo. <laughs> and then sometime on Wednesday like, night, you're like, All I'll right, put my rifle in the, in the van. I just won't put my ammo if it's cold. Yeah. But I'll even put my ammo in the summer. As long as it's not going to be super hot or super cold, like everything will be loaded in the van days before. And this goes back to, um, I think we've talked about this before, my match shelf in the garage. Yeah. Like, all my match stuff after we get home from this match will go on that shelf and then that shelf better be empty before I leave and there's certain things that don't go on there like my clothes bag and, and my cooler um, but other than that like everything that I need to shoot the match and uh, and stuff like that will be on that shelf I mean really if you show up to a match with a rifle and, and ammo and, and a bag you're good to go so and a Kestrel <laughs> but yep. that's why I keep my Kestrel in my rifle case <laughs> like that's- there's certain things that I'm like I, I prioritize, for me, I prioritize organization and standardization. I guess that's a good thing to say there. I prioritize standardized processes and standardized ways of doing things so that um, they happen autonomously. This is reloading 101 for me. I do one-piece flow. I mean, I can watch a movie, a whole TV series. I can answer a phone call um, because of my process like I don't stop until there's a bullet in their case and it's seated and they set it down I won't let myself do that so um yeah I everything has a priority and the priority is don't make mistakes and I know we still make mistakes and we've talked about that in recent episodes but I think for me like the overarching theme of everything that I've organized and aligned to be competitive in this sport is reducing failure modes and not making mistakes and, and that can be carried all the way to the trigger press on the stage yeah and that is my priority um yeah we can break down what we do before or after a stage or what we do on the clock i'm, I'm willing to like talk about some more examples of that yeah i think that some of that might be interesting um so one that comes to mind is the let's call it the, the training day i know we did a quick video with mdt but what are our what do we focus on on Friday? Uh, Thursday is our travel day generally, but Thursday, you know, we're pretty, let's just go through this. I mean, this is actually kind of an interesting topic. Most people don't know that we've directly talked about it. So uh, Wednesday night, we're coordinating, hey man, just to confirm, where are we going to park? And I send you a pin or vice versa. This is, let's meet at this one or this one. It's a parking ride or wherever we're going to go. Yep, we see you there at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. Um, all day travel Thursday, we always build in enough time to have, you know, we don't want to be to our destination if we can avoid it at midnight because then we're not getting good sleep. So we're planning for about a 6, 7 p.m. arrival. Invariably, I, how many times do you think we've actually made it to where we're going by 6 or 7? <laughs> Rarely, but, I mean, yeah. how often do you go to bed at 6 or 7? That's exactly. fine. As long as you're eating sometime around there and you show up somewhere at 10 and you yeah. go to bed, you're good. you're good. You're good to go. But we're giving ourselves enough time where we can kind of bumble through the trip, do everything that we need to do, have some food. Oh, that looks cool. Let's go check that out. And then, uh, you know, get to the hotel at a reasonable hour or to bed somewhere around between 10 and midnight, right? Um, 
then then we're waking up between six and seven a.m. as early as possible to get there half yep. hour before the range opens. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, trying to be there before it needs to. Be, we can actually do anything so that again, not because the range day hasn't already started, it's because by the time we get there, we need thirty minutes to prep our gear. Uh, just meaning, get out, unload, say hi to people that happen to be wandering around. Uh, you do the same thing. You put your rifle down the line, do your try and check in. Now it should be you're waiting for the range to go hot. That gives you every single opportunity to get everything done as much as possible because the worst case scenario, if you don't have the opportunity, is something goes slightly wrong and you do not have enough time to fix it. And I don't want to be in that situation frequently. So the more important the match for either A, if I only had one or two or three matches in a season, they would all be ultra important. And I'm not saying that matches aren't important. I'm saying they would each be very important to me because I'm only going to do three of these in a given season. I better make the most of every single one. Take the extra little time if you can afford it um, to be there as early as you can. And then from that point, I guess, what do we focus on from that point? What's the very first thing we're going to want to work on? Once, yeah. the match, once the match is live. Um, or not, sorry, not the match, but the train-up day. Yeah, once velocity and zero. That's yep. pretty straightforward. Yeah, now, I mean, with obviously with the Garmin, our process has changed just a little bit. In that we can start to do the same, but it, we attach, you know, we use the Garmin's running to the side of our rifles um, attached to them. Yeah, we're going to zero for five to ten rounds. Once we can feel that it's good, immediately start going out on dope. So six, seven, and say a thousand. We're checking different targets. Uh, and we're also watching velocities as those are happening so we can keep track of the real-time velocity. And it's over that first, what, 20 rounds, usually? I mean, we send probably 20 rounds between zero and data confirmation. Yeah, uh, the Friday before a match, if we can shoot targets and props and whatever we want for the most part, I generally only use 50 rounds total. Yep. Because I don't, I prefer not to clean my barrel that day. It's just an extra step. I, I'd like to get it fouled in and have, have it ready for the match, but I don't want to get 100 rounds on it because once I get 100, then I start thinking, well, now i got to go another 120 the next day, and now I'm 220 rounds and not cleaning it. So... If I get 50 rounds in that Friday, I'm, I'm happy. And then uh, then I'll consider cleaning it after day one and, and following it in again. So that's kind of my thought. Plus, I don't want to burn myself out. I'm, I think we said it in the um, MDT short, but my goal is to be done by noon. We, we failed at that at the finale. Oh, man, but we did. But there was so much to ex- um, experience because we had never been there, and there were so many props available in so many different shooting directions. I kind of wanted to explore every one of them, and we we did take our time though like we weren't on a frenzy trying to run and do everything we we were kind of taking it slow and i didn't really feel zapped at the end of friday no but it was it was kind of in that perfect temperature zone yeah when it was you know it's 45 to maybe 65 maybe um yeah and it was windy um a little bit windy that day so it wasn't you never got hot if it was say 80 to 90 degrees um it's really easy to get overdone and be overexerted before you realize it at 80 to 90 or 90 plus degrees. And in those cases, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get in and out as quickly as possible and just saving energy for the next day. I want to get something, you know, I want to get my zero in at or before the sun really cracks the trees so that it's relatively good light but not high intense mirage light. I'll wait enough so I have mirage and then reconfirm data again just to make sure things look normal when there's higher mirage. I keep my rifle covered, I keep my ammo covered, and I try to stay hydrated and get out of there within two to three hours. I mean, You're forgetting another thing, sunscreen. Sunscreen, sunscreen on, on oh, Friday, sunscreen and match weekend. I don't care if it's 20 degrees 
or it's 100 degrees if the sun is out like i'm i'm putting sunscreen on and you're putting chapstick on right now because you didn't do either one of those things over the weekend i do a pretty good job without sunscreen but it's not a good habit i just chapstick yeah it was really windy in my winter my lips are wind chapped so but yeah the sunscreen is a good idea um the uh the other things after we get through on uh friday we confirm all of our data we get through all the props um, we also take photos of every single prop as much as we can. If we can see them, we'll take photos and we'll just make key notes in our brain of, hey, this thing was, this was good, this was not so good. Hey, watch out for this position. Um, we take photos of our rifle on, like especially the ones we could shoot on. Like, yeah, as long up. as we're allowed to. Yeah, as long as we're allowed to get on the prop. I mean, check bipod heights, stuff like that. Yeah, and check clearances. One thing that was really useful, specifically at the finale, you know, when you have things that go very high to very low. Um, there were some tables and things where you're shooting from that look straightforward, but you know sometimes it's the straightforward, quote straightforward, stages that will trip you up because you just oh yeah I just need a bipod and a rear bag, and then like example the tote, uh, the tote stage you just think oh I've got a bipod and a rear bag, the tires we shot off of at one of the stages, you're fine you could pan with kind of a normal bipod height, but the tote was sloped in a kind of different direction it wasn't a whole lot. But it was enough that you re- you nearly ran out of room to get onto the target, and you had to force the gun up to the target. Um, well, so top of the tote was like loosely corrugated, like yeah. a tailgate uh, bed. You know, it had ridges in it for structural rigidity, and it, depending on how, how wide your bipod was, it would be lower by an inch or higher by an inch. Yep. So it was like two inches of total variation there. And then you, as you're panning, it's going up and down and tilting and all kinds of stuff. And the whole thing was just kind of oil canning. Yeah. So yeah, and you were—it was the last position of a four-position stage, and yeah, um, yeah. I target sequence both. was different. Go ahead. I was just gonna say the target sequence was different from each position. So mm-hmm. there was a lot going on on that seemingly simple stage, and you were shooting ninety degrees um, each target back and forth. So you had wind angle to deal with. You had um, the props weren't square to the the barricade wasn't square to either target so yeah you had uh, a lot of subtle nuances that made that stage trickier than than it looked on paper and in person but as soon as i saw a couple people navigate the 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 stage in our squad we were squad two i could tell okay this is not this is not like a straightforward just go up there and, and clean it type stage if you're going to clean it it's going to take a lot of efficiency of motion and gear efficiency on the clock for mm-hmm. for 100, 105 seconds to navigate this stage and, and shoot 10 targets. It was surprisingly sl- like you shot it surprisingly slow despite it only being four positions and like two of the positions you just shot right left move right left move. You you just wouldn't think it's going to take that long and suddenly beep. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, and that happened to me. I was I did not get my last shot off. But again, this is one where I might. So back to kind of priorities. You know, if this is one that I had had the chance to look at on Friday, which it didn't. I don't think you got a chance to look over there. We saw it, but we couldn't. We didn't go over there. Um, it would definitely have been one we would have looked at and just had recognized. Oh yeah, this looks like it might be a challenging, you know, prop to get on. Let's figure out better and more appropriate gear to use. More, better bipod heights, but like things like on the tables and. the the different traps and stuff we were the ones we could get on you know we'll set your rifle up take a photo of your rifle exactly as it's supposed to be on that prop 
And if you get to that stage, just go find that picture and take a detailed set of pictures that tells you, hey, this is your bipod notches. It was comfortable here. And guess what? From that point forward, you should be confident that you have the setup nailed and all you have to do is go execute on your win plan and target acquisition. It's not always possible to do what we're saying here based, no, on, it's not. based on the match location and the match director's rules. Um, but it is becoming more and more popular for match directors to have a fee for you to, you know, train on Friday. And uh, I would not miss out on that opportunity. I don't want to turn it into a three-day match by working all day on Friday, but I don't want to miss out on an opportunity to learn. And every match is a learning experience. Every shooting outing is a a learning opportunity. Um, If you go to these places and you think you you know everything already, it's going to humble you real quick. And so I always go there with an open mind and exploratory um, mindset that, hey man, what could the match director ask us to do on these props that would throw a wrench in the mix? Uh, Yep. And try to experiment on those props that are relatively uncommon. I mean, we had a an oil rig that we had to shoot yeah, off of. Really interesting. And I'm thinking, how many different positions could we shoot this in? And uh, luckily, you know, it was pretty straightforward, the positions they had us shooting in. But um, I could see a half a dozen more positions that would have made it a little more difficult. And uh, I definitely wanted to explore those. Plus, it gives you a chance, even if you don't shoot it in the match, to explore different shooting positions that you can't at, at home. Um, your range might not have anything like that, or you might not be able to recreate anything like that, you know, at your house for dry fire, stuff like that. So, again, we, I like to follow the 10 to 1 dry fire rule, just so I'm not burning, you know, 500 rounds on, on Friday. Um, that's an excessive number. I'm, I'm not even saying I'm burning 100 rounds, but I try to do some dry fire and just to offset the cost and the barrel life of sending a bunch of live rounds but i want to send live rounds in a new range where i can learn the wind so you can balance that accordingly but i would highly recommend uh dry firing as well yeah the uh the interesting part about you know being on a stage and having a lot of gear is not all the gear you want to use is practical all the time right so one of the things that i actually shifted focuses to on uh sunday at like say our finale I just took one bag and a hundred rounds of ammo, and, uh, and frankly, your garment. And my gar- my garment, my garment <laughs> was there too. Yeah, but one bag and a hundred rounds of ammo, and quite literally, just said, "I'm just going to focus on keeping everything as simple as I possibly can," because it was working the wind plan and making fewer mistakes and trying to eliminate mental mistakes um, and procedural errors was the priority for me that day. So. You know, anything that was going to involve a tripod, not going to happen. Uh, anything that involved using extra bipod changes, not going to happen. Using extra bags, not going to happen. So I eliminated those to focus on the things that I needed. I slimmed down my gear to simply the bag I was the most comfortable with that was the most versatile, my 100 rounds of ammo. I had a backup mag inside my pack and two on my hip. That was it. Nothing more. And a Garmin. <laughs> um, and obviously I still had like my toolkit for fixing things but um, in other words I had no additional gear and you really shouldn't need much more than that it's when you start adding some complexities if things are starting to if things feel like they're falling apart um, that's when I think you should pull back to what is your core do something well to rebuild confidence as quickly as possible 
Um, if and, and Hunter Weirs actually is a good, you know, just to give him a kind of a kudos and a high five. Um, he mentioned at that match, he's like, I don't understand. There were so many people making some stages that for him, he just felt they were making them really hard. Uh, he's like, man, I used a bag off of the bulldozer. I used a bag on the oil derrick. I used a bag off of the picnic table and those two tank traps. He bagged, lit- I mean, everything that you would normally use a bipod. He just shot off of a bag. And he shot incredibly well. Yeah, he's a stud. Yeah. But I think to, I think there's a there's a sort of a nuanced um, benefit to that approach. Yeah, you get really good at you one do. thing, and you don't you don't make it overcomplicated. Yeah, you just you eliminate one set of stress and constraints to have to go. Oh, you know, if I'm going to use a bipod, you got to what height do I want it? How much does it need to be out? Or maybe that's how you want to run it most of the time. And you can, as long as there's two and a half feet or two like twenty four to 20, 30 inches or so of surface area, you can run a bipod. Uh, maybe you figure out a way to use it all the time. Either way, try to condense it down to the simplest possible version of what you can use on the clock in the most efficient manner possible. I think that's phase one. I think everybody needs to go through that phase, um, or that's phase maybe two. Phase one is figure out the fundamentals, but I think phase one, phase two is get really good at, at one thing, like using one method. And then phase three is like you already have this foundation built that uh, that will work in any scenario that you can always fall back on and you can trust. But phase three would be um, l- look into those more nuanced and, and technical ways to build super stability like the tack table or the tripod yeah. rear. Like those, I'm not discounting those at all, honestly. I'm I'm saying like those can be um, those can be points like literally a point per stage if you can if you can master those those skills. But if you're not ready for them because you haven't built the foundation for um, all the other things that you need to understand with your weapon system and, and one bag, then you're you're missing the the bulk the meat and potatoes of of the of the skills that you need to master. Exactly. Yeah, and that's why, like, you know, if things start, if the wheels start to feel like they're getting a little bit loose or you're making mistakes that you shouldn't or you made a mistake and you just want to go back to common simplicity, that's where you should default to your simple plan. And that's why I say the priority, the priority is always have solid, a fundamental backup plan that will keep you pointed in the right direction, you know, wheels down, not wheels up, um, in the correct orientation, so to speak. In, in doing so, you get you will continue to find a better way of seeing, okay, this is what's got to happen on this stage. And you just get to focus on it. Um, I feel like I kind of let that lapse a little over the last couple matches where I was trying to work more towards, you know, extra bags, extra games. And I'm going to work a little bit more towards simplicity, mainly so I can keep the priority on the things that we really need to hammer down, right? We can't make mental mistakes at all. Um, we also I would love have to, to see have, you work on tripod more. I, I understand that. I know we've talked about that a lot, but it's 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 something I have to practice in the off season to be extraordinarily good at. Um, ooh, shout out! Speaking of tripods, one of the most there was only one person I saw use a tripod rear on that um, big small troop line off of the tack table and in the two tank traps. I saw. It was Morgan. I saw. I saw. Who was it? It was Corson. Corson Piper. Wow. He yeah. timed out on the last shot, but, okay. uh, yeah, he looked real smooth yeah, with it. Morgan got through it with, like, five seconds left. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, don't get me wrong. It was it was a lot, but it takes a ton to get through. I would not have gotten through that stage with a tripod, um, not the way that they're used to doing it. So it's, again, the priority. What I is think the I would have, but, but I, 
I shot it without it, and I didn't feel like it was needed even after I shot it. I agree. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that's, the, again, back to, you know, where we, we're talking about assessing priorities. Uh, there are definitely times where you can overthink something in front of you and make it a problematic because of how much you're trying to add complexity because you're thinking, oh, this is not going to be stable or this is, let's just use some numbers to this. If this, if I'm going to shoot off this prop with a bag and it's a 98 out of 100 and I'm going to shoot it off with a bipod and it's a 99.5 out of 100, is that one and a half percent chance, is it really different? And I, I think the answer is no, personally. Um, I think the answer is going to be that those are effectively the same and both things being equal, if one has a more cumbersome approach as you go further down the stage, stick with a simplistic approach. Yeah, it's it's virtually impossible to put statistics to it because it's also based on skill level skill and level. practice with that particular method. But I think that the I think the percentages are, are I think the, the variance between those percentages are bigger than one, two, five percent. I think sometimes that, I think that there's a reason why Morgan ran it with that because he statistically felt like it was less risky. But uh, I mean, he, for him, yeah, he's also like, the areas you can screw up a bike, like a bipod and a rear bag, right? It seems like it's a, oh, this is a no-brainer. This makes you, you know, quote, fundamentally more solid. That's what most people I think would presume having shot both. Except set up incorrectly, you can force Oh, yeah. what feels like a stable position to be not stable. You can have two little bags, squeeze it really hard and just be barely kissing the rifle with the bag and you're like, yeah, it stopped. But as soon as you break the trigger, the thing's going to be looking in half a mil to a mil the different direction. And that's not a stable shot necessarily. Um, or you might have to drive the rifle down or into it and you might have to be in a different shoulder area in order to get behind the rifle properly. Those things are kind of hard to identify when you're in just, I have to rush it and it's not falling together the same way it would be if you just put your bag down and get your rifle on it. I I agree with you, and that's why I default to bag over bipod bag on on weird surfaces. And but I'm just just thinking out loud here. I'm I wondering. Know. I'm wondering if it's uh, it's a cop out because we don't train the opposite enough. I, I wonder if it's uh, we're leaving something on the table. I do think that there's no, there's nothing wrong with the bag. You can get to MPA really quickly. Um, the rifle tracks really well in a bag. If you have a bipod on a rock pile that is barely teetering on the top of a rock mm-hmm. and recoil impulse takes you off the corner of that rock, your shot's going to go weird. Yeah, you can build a position fast, but your bag on a rock pile is going to give you the same stability and tracking when the rifle's recoiling as your bag on a picnic table, as your bag on a uh, barricade, you know, yeah. all, all these things. It's going to be a more consistent interface. So, just intuitively, I feel like the bag is the right choice 90% of the time. But it's because of that, um, I'm making it a priority. I'm, I'm taking the other method and just discounting it. Yeah. And but again, I don't know that that's fair or smart, to be quite honest. I, again, I agree with you. I think that there is merit in figuring out how to use a bipod appropriately. And a bipod and a rear bag, and it can wait. And when I say that, you know, we, we know, just for the listeners... We're talking about taking your bipod, moving it from the very, very, very front of your forend, for instance, all the way to the rear, where it's only an inch or so in front of the magwell, or two, three, four inches in front of the magwell, where it's nearly at or just in front of your balance point, so that when you set the rifle down, you can get to those narrow surfaces 
or you know you have short rocks and you extend the legs um, those scenarios are not ideal for a bipod if you're not familiar with it because you might set the bipod up low and you just can't get the bag low enough or you're resting your rifle on the mag inadvertently I mean, there's a, a bunch of weird ways, but you do have to have a lot of experience with it. So, you know, find ways of using different props. That's what train-up day is for. During the match, if something goes wrong, I tend to go to the simplest possible method that I'm 100% comfortable with, knowing that at least I can control my own destiny with this setup. And there's enough times where I haven't had a good experience with bipod-type positions that I've tended to shy away from them more than uh, move towards them. Yeah, I I agree with it. I I tend to stress out more about rifle cant and bag height and bipod height, uh, especially in unfamiliar situations. But that just means that I don't practice it enough. Yeah, I suppose. The um, once you get past, I mean, the bipod stuff. What about what about target sequences? This is something that I struggle with early on when you have the really complicated stages. But learning the priority, if you will, on a stage means like is the match director trying to stress your target order are they trying to stress your ability to move between positions are they trying to stress um, target identification which sometimes is the case Uh, other times it's a combination of both where it's more of a precision game where you just have to break perfect shots like those the small ones we had like at the finale the small uh, of the big smalls that we had some of those tiny little they were Two tenths. I mean, they were there was incredibly only one, small. There was only one target that was two tenths. Was maybe two on the one on the KYLs. But the little ones were two and a half to three and a half, three tenths on the the, the first three targets on the troop line off of the which we'll call it where we were prone shooting out up the hill. Big small. Those were just shy. Of, it was about three tenths. Okay. They were tiny. I mean, the small one out at the five hundred yard berm was tiny. But point being, point being. Those just required absolute, insanely perfect follow-throughs and breaks. Not only did you have to watch your shot prior, you took everything you had to make a perfect shot. It is as perfect as perfect could be so that you give it the best fighting chance at being where you think the reticle is going to be. Yeah, that was the one where you walked out the big and then you walked out the small. Yeah. yeah. That was a cool stage. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Seemingly straightforward, but a lot of troop line stages, you'll shoot the big and then the small, and then go to the next array and shoot the big and then the small. This one was big all the way out, and then you start back over and you go small all the way out. But there was a kicker. This was only, it was four targets. So you went three, four, five, one shot each. And then at six, you went double tap, big. So it was one, 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 two. On the big. On the big. Then start over one, 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 small, and then double tap the small. And that tiny nuance, this is where, you know. It got somebody in our squad. Oh, yeah. It got one or two people for sure in our squad. I think it was two people. Um, Yeah, I won't name names. But, yeah, it got two people in our squad. And it's those types of scenarios where sometimes it just seems so straightforward. Another stress of focusing on hyper small targets. You just lose track of what you're doing. And bang you you just you skip over a target i mean it happened to me uh or you you shoot a target with one extra round and you weren't supposed to or you don't shoot the extra round you just kind of go through what you think you need to be doing and you just lose track of momentum and time yeah here's another thing i just thought of um if you can't hear the arrow saying impacts then you need to say something because in a scenario like that 
if you think you got an impact and then you just keep going and, and it was out of sequence and you think you got an impact, you saw it move, but you haven't been hearing them say impact on the other stuff because you're just either not paying attention or you're, they're not very loud. Like I always tell people like, please make sure that you're saying impacts loud enough. And if I shoot the first target and it, and it's an impact and I don't hear a very positive confirmation of an impact, I will say, was that an impact? And then they say, yeah, I said it. Okay. So, so I, I just, I've sent the message that I didn't hear them and you don't want to get halfway through a stage where there's a transition point or something. And then you're not hearing them say impact and you're not, and that isn't phasing you, you know, you need to be hearing impacts because when you don't hear impacts, you know that you shot the wrong target and you don't want to perpetuate that. Yeah. And this has become a bigger issue as of late, especially when we start having, you know, especially hit to move on. This is a really good example. Sometimes hit to move on is literally like a TYL rack. You've got to hit it to move to the next target. Sometimes it means must hit big and then you hit the small, otherwise re-engage. That is also technically a form of a hit to move on. Well, if you don't hear them, let's say you don't hear an impact, but you assume that you did. You could easily shoot the wrong target or shoot the target again. Uh, go to the small one and you just lost a point because they didn't have an impact or vice versa. You did hit it. They weren't watching. I mean, or they didn't catch it or they didn't say it loud enough. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Re-engage or don't re-engage, move on. It's, it is tough when you have to have a kind of two-way dialogue in order to confirm points to avoid a misinterpretation of what the stage is going to be while you're shooting it. And those are the ones I'm really nervous about. So yeah, you really have to pay attention to people saying what you think and, and you staying on top yeah, of it's hard if you got stages all smashed together and you hear another stage say impact or worse yet you yeah. hear them say time or and worse you yet you hear them you hear a timer beep i've seen multiple people in the last three matches i didn't see it at the finale but in they the last couple the matches they said was that time like you hear a beep and do not absolutely do not stop and say was that time yeah, you stop keep when shooting. they come over and keep say, shooting. Hey, shooter, that was you, and they're tapping you on the shoulder. Keep shooting can... safely, yeah. safely. Say, but, yeah, but, safely. But make sure that it's a positive. It, it's on the timer and it's on the RO to, to to say time. You do not have time if you're already up against the wall. You do not have time to ask that question and wait for feedback. So I always tell people respectfully, hey, shoot your match or shoot your stage safely, and. Wait for a positive, wait for them to say time. If they have to say it twice, that's totally fine. They're not going to get completely pissed off at you if you didn't hear them the first time and they have to say it one other time. I mean, you're shooting around in a safe direction. It's not like yeah. you're trying to break the rules, but you do not have time to ask ask if it's if your time is up. There's, <laughs> there's probably a little bit of a difference between your two stages into a five shots to five position stage and they say time and two it legitimately stages. like two positions oh two positions okay. like yeah you make position one you have a bunch of problems you get to position two you have a bunch of problems hey time you don't just keep don't just keep shooting if you know it's if you reasonably think like yeah my time is up and they come over and you know that they're standing directly to your left and they're saying hey shooter that's time yeah just okay now stop open your bolt do all that stuff but yeah if you if you're talking like a one to two second decision and you're about to or not to send a shot send the shot Unless there's like a safety reason you cannot, like a cease fire, cease fire. Anytime you hear that, you immediately stop everything. Yeah, the times where I've seen yeah. this play out is when is you, the you they hear a beep, but they did not hear somebody say time. 
So this was an interesting, just cautionary tale about have running your own timers. Just you should have FYI, a timer on your rifle. You a should have one. <laughs> yeah. B, you have to make. If sometimes ROs who are newer hear that, and if they're not super familiar, like the first day one, they know first squad or two, they can hear your. Like I set mine three seconds shy of the real part time, and they'll hear my buzzer go off, and they think it's the shot timer beeping. Oh boy! And it's happened. It hasn't happened much this season, or I should say, last season. Uh, but the season prior, it did happen twice. I had them go time, and I'm like, "No, that's my timer." And I and that I used to set it five to eight seconds shy to give me a full, like, okay, now that I have it, exhale, send a shot. Uh, so I knew I had eight seconds left, and then I just continued shooting, broke the shot, check your timer. Oh yeah, that was in time. Like. Wait, what was the time? What was the beeping now? Oh, that's my timer. It's down here. It's a different one. And, you know, it's just something to be aware of. It can throw newer ROs off when they hear the beep uh, or several beeps and they think it's some version of their own timer. So, yeah, it's not a whole lot you can do about it. But, again, if you have a timer and you know that it's working and you have it running, it's a good backup to the idea that, oh, my shot timer, your shooter, that's time. Like, my timer has been running as well and you had five extra seconds built in, it's not going off yet. Yeah. There's times where that saved me. Mm-hmm. And their timer didn't start or their timer time, like, battery died or something like that. But then there's been times where my timer didn't start. Like, I didn't push the button or something. And, and I am that person towards the end of the stage thinking, yeah. I'm going to run out of time, but I'm going to keep shooting until they say the word time. Uh, anyway, we've belabored that point. I just uh, I, I just popped through my head because I saw somebody do it at the MPA match, and I pulled them aside and said, hey, man, like, keep shooting until they come up and say the word time. Don't ask. Um, let's see. So simplicity, if you start to have some struggles, you know, obviously identify the major priorities within the stage. Um, personally, I'm always trying to figure out, is this a test of wind, which, again, again usually East Coast matches, sometimes there's not a lot of wind. You have that figured out. You're going to figure that out on the clock um, and make the adjustments needed. You're likely going to hit a lot of shots. If it's big wins, that's always going to be my priority or my focus. Um, Like West Coast matches or really, really windy matches, I spend more time, an inordinate amount of time, focusing on watching and learning the wind. Not so much what is my plan going to be right away, but just simply watching and learning what signs, what does a max feel like and what does a min feel like, what does a max look like, what does a min feel like, and keep going back and forth. Um, I think we're leaving out a priority that, um, because of the way we do, do our data, we're leaving out a priority that most people, a lot of people might think, hey, this is my priority. My priority is getting my data, getting my dope for that stage. Yeah. And if you're not using some type of target sectors or target card or your app doesn't have the ability for you to preload the stages, that, to me, is the main priority. You're like You need to get a wind direction in your Kestrel or your device, uh, your app, so that you have the proper aerodynamic jump. And, you know, just a rough value and direction. And then um, get your data written down on your card, mark your turret. Then, for me, it starts, okay, what, what am I going to do about this wind? Yep. <laughs> so if, you, if, if you're having to write your data or enter your targets in at the stage or at the match, that is my priority. And that includes finding the targets because you need the target direction to know the target. Um, you need to know the direction to know the dope to know its factor or variable within whatever wind direction that target is aligned with so 100 percent. yeah the target orientation is important if if you aren't 
calibrating your compass or setting a direction of fire for a given target on every solution past even 500 yards. 400 yards inside of 500, you're probably not, it's not super concerning. But when you go out to five, six, seven hundred yards, any or excuse me, past five, six hundred yards, it starts to matter dramatically. So um, I know I've had it cost me some issues um, in points where I just I forgot to give it a direction. Yeah, this the the finale was one where we were shooting multiple stages that had ninety to one hundred and twenty degrees. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't every stage, but there was lots of stages where we had to shoot, shoot 90 degrees um, direction of fire. So it's pretty important if your if your wind is somewhere within that 90 degrees that you have it set, you know, so that your AJ is one direction for the for the left targets and one direction for the right targets. Um, your AJ will be different. Your holds will be different. You know, you need to have that preset, and that's that's kind of what I was getting after. If if you guys aren't using, if you have a Kestrel and you're not using sectors. You need to force yourself to do it. I know people say, I don't want to do it at a match. Well, do it at home. Like, sit in the backyard on the pe- on the porch with a beer and pick three or four different directions and then hold your Kester up and get a wind direction and just figure this out. It's not that hard. I know Morgan's talked about it. I know there's Kestrel. If you get on the Kestrel website, there's little uh, video webinar type things. They have a whole training schedule on the Kestrel website for live WebEx type uh training sessions where you can ask questions and they kind of have topics already predetermined and it's an interactive type thing and then they're pre-recorded episodes um you want to do this stuff outside of match day if you can get that stuff loaded in there and then make sure that you're enter- entering the right inputs for target direction and wind direction um these are things that can't you can't have them in there incorrectly and be successful and somebody and you're taking somebody's wind call in this scenario, you're not learning a damn thing. You know, mm-hmm. you can you can talk to five people to come off a stage as long as they're they've been shooting troop lines in these types of conditions, and you can write down and then take an average of all theirs, and you'll probably you know get pretty close. Um, but you once you start missing, if you're not watching shots and you're not thinking about why you're missing, uh, you're not going to learn much. Basically, you're, you're going to struggle, and you're not going to learn much. And, that, and both of those two things combined equal frustration. And too much frustration can boil over into, you know, questioning life and why why you're doing this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think those are all good, valid points. Once you're outside of those, what's your next priority for like post after a match? You know, good, bad, or ugly. Give yourself a moment to say, hey, I did a few things right. I did a few things wrong. Take a take a moment to figure out the list of what did you what do you need to work on? Where did you have your misses? Where did you have your successes? And find all of those places to evaluate what you're going to do moving forward to improve or isolate those. So the, my priority after the match, the morning of or on the drive home, is to think through all those things and then have a moment where I can sit with a notepad or sit with a pen and paper and just jot those items down or circle the pages on the stage and try to give it a a quick list of what to work on next we do it like you made a list the other day we were emailing it to ourselves yeah um i would caution yourself to make too big of a list so that it's overwhelming i would try to make you know whatever's whatever you think is something that's going to have a lasting impact on um making an improvement that gets you in the right direction that uh something that can be sustained relatively easily uh, would be my first priority. I want to. I want to make changes to my process and to my training that 
that will eliminate that stuff from being a problem forever, if possible, or for the longest period of time. And then there's always going to be things that you you will continually need to focus on, like trigger press and follow through. In my opinion, have to be something that you're you're very disciplined. If you're not shooting a lot of rounds and and doing a lot of dry firing, like there's certain things that you need to still think about in your process every time. Yeah. Well, from that point, you should just focus on finding the best ice cream you can, the best chicken wings, the best beer, and or steak. Because All well, the above. why wouldn't you have those things? Yeah, those make it better if you have a bad day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not going to look at a beer and chicken wings and think, life is horrible. <laughs> I don't think. I mean, I guess you could, uh, especially if you like don't like super hot foods and you get ghost pepper wings. That could turn life into a real... You remember that time you had chicken wings where you had to sign a waiver? Did we ever yes. talk about that? I, well, I don't know if we did talk about it or not. You had to sign a waiver, and they gave you um, nitrile gloves to put on. Yeah, so they wouldn't let me eat them without nitrile gloves on. <laughs> How cool was that? Pretty wild. I don't know. I didn't I eat did it, I did get a so t-shirt. You did? Yeah. It was your the Trinidad lips, Scorpion. Your lips looked like you had lipstick on when you were done, though. Like, they were just inflamed. It was funny because it, wasn't, it didn't actually seem that hot. But, but it was sustained. Don't worry. I mean, they were hot for sure. But it wasn't like, I feel like I've ate much hotter wings. Um, but I guess it was a Trinidad, Trinidad Scorpion-based sauce. So it's Did you hear there's a new hot pepper? The I new hottest pepper? It's that. not the ghost pepper, the Reaper no, or whatever anymore? The Carolina Reaper? It's not that one. It's a new, new one. Um, but it's a hybrid of like the Buk Jolo, blah, blah, blah. I can't say. I don't even know how to pronounce it. And I think it was that and the, the Reaper. I think it was a hybrid between the two. But it's an order of magnitude way, way, way hotter than the previous hottest pepper. I want to watch a video of somebody trying to eat that that's like used to the hot things to see if they go, yep, this is at a new level. Yeah. At it's, some uh, point, I got to imagine those, those things are just like, they're too hot for humans to actually eat safely. It says it's three times spicier than its predecessor. <laughs> so it's not an order of magnitude, but it is approaching eating three of those things at the same time. It's called Pepper X. How lame is that? That seems pretty The new world's hottest pepper, seems Pepper like X. Seems like a cop-out right there. Somebody couldn't think of a cool enough name. So, But then again, I guess it, now it's stuck. I mean, it's so easy. A small, wrinkly... This is a description. A small, wrinkly, yellow-green pepper known as Pepper X is now officially the hottest chili pepper in the world. Just oh, drop one in your stocking. Yeah, it's 2.693 million Scoville heat units. It's wild. It's pretty smoking hot. Jalapenos, 2,000. That's a lot of jalapenos. It's <laughs> a lot of jalapenos. It's wild. Pepper. Oh, speaking of hot things, remember uh, that show Hot Wings? Yeah. That show's pretty cool. I've been watching it. When they that. do the interviews? Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they have a celebrity on the show. And hot ones. Hot, hot wings. Hot, hot ones. Hot ones, yeah. Yeah. And they progressively get hotter and hotter. That's yeah. pretty wild. It's pretty funny. It is. There's some really good ones. I've had... Uh, many a good drive where I'm just like oh I need something to watch and I'll just sit on that and just listen to their inter- their uh, interviews and it's, it's funny. neat how he talks about like what he talks about like yeah this is a good sauce it's got a lot of flavor let's go ahead and try it and just and then there's the last dab well it gets out of hand really quick after the third or fourth <laughs> pepper and it's all building like I can imagine and I like hot wings like I always get the hot wings but I don't get the ones that are like incre- incredibly spicy like I don't get the weird ones I just get the normal hot wings yeah yeah, I don't. I don't generally get super hot wings either. So, if I get super hot ones, it's a crazy day. Because that means I probably have rubber gloves and, and a chance to win a T-shirt. All right. Well, let's make that a priority and 
make a stop somewhere. Ooh, that's a good idea. Maybe they have the uh, X pepper sauce. Pepper X. Pepper X sauce. <laughs> this is a bad idea. That's silly. I'm not going to own this every day. I'm yeah. going to just run away from the Pepper X challenge. Well, I hope you own everything from the finale every day, and I'm going to try to do the same in the downtime and between that and the AG Cup and then between the AG Cup and the start of next season. I'm really going to try to own the mistakes I made this year and learn from them because, um, you know, we both finished in the, the top 30 in the series, and um, I'm feeling okay about that, but we can do way better. I agree. <laughs> well, all right. Let's own it every day, buddy. See you. See you later.